So, welcome to church. My name is Mark. I am the rector here. Uh, welcome if you're listening online. We have a growing community of people who listen online. And if you're dropping in and you're not sure where we're up to, let me tell you uh, what we're doing and, and what this book of Ecclesiastes is trying to accomplish. Uh, if you recall, uh, Ecclesiastes is a book written to help us understand the limitations of living in this world without God. So it tells us the story of this character, Kohelet, a Solomon-like character, rich, powerful, creative, brilliant, and uh, Kohelet is going to explore experientially in the world what it's like to live based on reason and experience and rationality alone. And he's going to, as he does that, he discovers that life doesn't really work. You can't make sense of the world just using your own faculties. In fact, everything is enigmatic. You think you understand it, but then you don't. And the book is designed by showing us the limits of autonomous human reason to push us to trust in God and to say, really, in the end, the only way we can make sense of life is to do it hand in hand with the creator of the world. And in this section that we're looking at today, Kohelet is going to do that by helping us think about the realities of injustice and oppression. And again, it's going to show us the limits of our own understanding and move us to say, really, the only way to make sense of this world with the experience of injustice and oppression is to go through it hand in hand with God. And that's where I'm hoping we're all going to get to by the end with a, a trust, a deeper trust in God, no matter where we're starting from. Uh, I want to say right up the front that talking about issues of injustice and oppression raise many questions for us. And uh, in the three hours that we have available for this talk now, uh, we can't possibly address all of that, uh, but uh, it's a start, and I'm very open after to discuss this and to talk and to work with you as you grapple with these questions. So let's get into it. The first point that Kohelet makes, and this is a point that is true for us today, is the ubiquity of evil. This is point number one, the ubiquity of evil. And he says this, I saw something else under the sun. This is how bad it is. Uh, in the place of judgment, so in the court system that is designed to provide protection for the poor and the vulnerable, in the place of judgment and in the place of justice, right? So... Uh, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, as with all human beings, have this deep inbuilt sense that there needs to be justice. And every human society builds out some sort of system for providing justice. And Kohelet says, when he looks at the world, evil is so ubiquitous that in the place of judgment and in the place of justice, what is there? Wickedness wickedness. The very place where a poor person would go to receive justice, there they encounter evil, even more injustice. 
the scholars tell us um, that this text was written. There's a variety. There's a debate about this, but um, the particular scholars I think have got it right would argue it's around the third century BC. What was happening around then, the historians tell us, was that there was uh, a system of debt slavery developing in ancient Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, a poor Israelite would get themselves into debt to a rich Israelite. And being unable to pay to work their way out of debt, what they would do is they would sell themselves into slavery. Now, that had happened. That happens in human history, but was particularly evil and was clearly against the Jewish law. As Israel was now embedded in the Greco-Roman Empire and increasingly internationalized, the rich Jewish people would not take these poor Jews on as their own slaves, which offered them all the protections of the Jewish law and the right of jubilee so they'd be restored and the ability for a kinsman to buy them back out of slavery. So slavery, debt slavery in ancient Egypt was carefully uh, prescribed or proscribed to limit the evil and provide a way out. Wealthy Israelites were selling their fellow Jews to uh, international slave traders, and they were trafficking poor Jews out of Israel into the Greco-Roman Empire, where they were completely beyond the reach of Jewish law, Jewish mercy, of any form of redemption. And what is in view is that a Jewish person would go to the courts I've got myself into debt. The person who holds the debt is going to sell me overseas, would go to the Jewish court in Jerusalem and say, will you protect me? And what would they discover? That in the place of judgment and in the place of justice, there was wickedness. The courts would collude with the rich and the powerful, and they would be trafficked off into slavery men, women, and children. There is a ubiquity of wickedness in the world. Now you might say, isn't it good that that doesn't happen today? And you know what? Here in Australia, by and large, that doesn't happen. Our justice system, by and large, functions pretty well. But what about the rest of the world? The United Nations estimates that around 2 billion people in the world today live outside the protection of functioning justice systems. So if you are poor in many, many, many parts of the world, there is no one to protect you. There is no one in the, there is no one in the justice system who will be there for you. This is how Kohelet describes it in, I think, one of the most poetic and powerful indictments of humankind. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 4, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. Who's meant to comfort the poor? Who's meant to comfort the oppressed? The justice system. You turn for rescue and protection. 
But when you turn there, there's no one there. In Kenya today, if you live in a slum outside Nairobi, and you are raped as a young girl going to collect water, or on your way to school, there are no police you can turn to for protection. Why? Because the police are some of the most active perpetrators of the abuse of the poor in Kenya today. They have no comforters. When you have built your little shack in a slum in Kenya and a richer, more powerful person steals your land from you and throws you onto the street, you have no comforter because the police will not be there for you and quite possibly are in collusions with the people stealing your land. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. The, the heart of the evil, what makes this evil so terrible is that the oppressors have impunity. They can get away with it. And that's a terrible thing. In India today, uh, there are about 20 million people kept in slavery in various forms of bonded slave labor. you are more likely to be struck by lightning than to be prosecuted for keeping slaves in India today. Impunity. You can get away with it. And so you will, because this is the nature of power, that when justice systems do not work to hold all people to account, the rich and the powerful because of the impunity that they have, will use their wealth and their power to oppress the poor, and the poor will be reduced to a state of complete hopelessness. In fact, it's so bad. If you have no comforter in the world as an oppressed person, it is so bad that it's uh, better than both is the one who has never been born. hard for us in Australia to imagine this. Do you imagine if there's no one there for you to protect you? You imagine you're a five-year-old child working in a brick kiln and you try and run away and the slave owner cuts off one of your hands and puts you straight back to work. And you know that no one will come for you and all you have to look forward to is being worked until you die. You may marry in the brick kiln, you may reproduce in the big brick kiln, but one thing is guaranteed, you will never get out of the brick kiln. No one will come for you. And Kohelet says that is so evil. Impunity allowing oppressors to oppress the weak is so evil that it would be better that you'd never even been born. That's the problem. Two billion people live in that state today. 42 million are kept in some form of modern-day slavery. 
This, by the way, is why we love royal commissions, don't we? Why do we love royal commissions in Australia? Because it brings justice. It removes impunity from the rich and powerful. And there's something in us that goes, yes! Because you see, we have the system in Australia where we know sometimes the justice system as it normally is doesn't work if you're a, a powerful institution like the church. You can get away with abusing kids for years and the police and the clergy can collude and it's all just a private matter and no one looks too hard. But eventually we go, no, this must end and we have a royal commission and then impunity is removed. And we love that. Don't you love the financial commission, uh, Royal Commission and Financial Services that's going on at the moment? I'm like, yes! You can't get away with earning commissions from dead people and then lying about it. Like, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a great thing that there is no impunity for evildoers. Eventually, the law will catch up with you. Now, a little aside... I personally don't think that company directors and executives should go to jail for white-collar crime. I don't think white-collar crime should result in incarceration. It's too expensive, and it's not that effective, and you can get out. Here's what I think. I think crimes like that should just result in uh, removing all their wealth and public humiliation. Stocks in Martin Place with public floggings. There's a deterrent. Remove now. I don't think anyone's going to take my views on this very seriously, uh, you know. But I think we we know viscerally that if the if there is the threat of being found out and being punished, it's going to restrain your behaviour. Because here is the truth, right? Uh, as Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist and public intellectual, says, every hierarchy tends towards oppression. So societies, every culture, every group of human beings are always organized in hierarchies, and hierarchies always lean in towards oppression. And so every culture has to develop ways of ensuring that the hierarchies that emerge do not result in impunity for those at the top of the hierarchy because they will inevitably oppress those below them. The way I like to put it is that uh, oppression flows down power gradients. Oppression flows down power gradients. So here's how it works. You go to work, you have a really crappy day at work, your boss treats you miserably and unjustly, so you go home, you treat your partner miserably and unjustly, they treat the kids miserably and unjustly, and the kid kicks the dog, right? Power, oppression flows down the power gradient. And so we need ways in which impunity can be removed and those at the top of hierarchies cannot get away with wickedness. Now, the great news of, that Kohelet tells us and the great news of the Bible is, guess what? Guess what? The powerful will not get away with it forever. The powerful will not get away with it forever because God will judge. Isn't that awesome? It says, I said to myself, 
God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. That's, isn't that the best news ever? Actually, I suspect the only reason you're not giving me some black Baptist Pentecostal amen brothers right now is A, you're not American black Pentecostals, but B, <laughs> perhaps because you haven't thought and felt deeply enough about the reality of impunity and unpunished evil, because if you have, that's the best news ever. Wouldn't you be thinking that? I love, I love the idea that every German politician and every German concentration camp guard who oversaw the murder of my family will be held to account. That is good news. I love the fact that every perpetrator of gender-based violence in the world, gender-based violence that happens behind the doors of, of shacks, and house and, and mud houses and palatial mansions. Every perpetrator of that evil against uh, women and children, every one of those people will be held to account, even if no one around them ever sees. Isn't that good news? That is the best news ever. Love the fact love the fact that every genocidaire in Rwanda who murdered a million people in about 10 weeks will be held to account. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming, says Kohelet. You see, I find the experience of wickedness and oppression in the world one of the greatest reasons to be a Christian. I don't know what your view on faith is, but here's how it works for me, you see. Sometimes people, and often people will say to me, one of my big struggles about faith and one of the reasons I'm not a Christian is because of the problem of evil and suffering. Honestly, I say one of the biggest reasons I am a Christian is because of the problem of evil and suffering because in every human heart is this longing for justice and for everyone to be held, and held to account, and we know that can't happen in this world. Because who sees everything? <laughs> who knows well enough how to punish everyone? Who has the power to hold everyone accountable? Well, clearly no one in this world. So if there is to be justice in the world, as we all long for, then it seems reasonable to me that there must be a God. And that God must look remarkably like the God of the Bible. All-knowing, all-powerful, completely pure with a heart for justice, completely committed to the good and the well-being of all, including the poor and the vulnerable. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the argument from unmet desire. And the argument from unmet desire works like this. If you look in the world and you discover that everybody has a particular hunger or desire, then it's reasonable to assume that the potential for that desire to be met exists. So everyone is thirsty, 
Therefore, we assume that water exists to meet our thirst, or wine, if that's your preference. Uh, uh, it, the potential for that desire to be met exists. Every one of us has a deep hunger for accountability and justice, so it's quite reasonable to assume the potential for that exists, that we're made to live in a world where ultimate accountability will happen. It makes it very reasonable to think that a God that looks very similar to the God of the Bible must exist. And that's good news, isn't it? You go, yes, that's really good news. Uh, but Colette says, ah, it is good news, yeah, 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 but don't get ahead of yourself, right? Don't get ahead of yourself. There's a problem with this, and what's the problem with the idea that a God will judge people once they've, you know, at some point in time? <laughs> well, the problem is, actually, many people seem to die without ever being judged. So death becomes a problem. Uh, death becomes a problem because, verse 9, surely the fate, 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. Uh, as one dies, so dies the other. Humans have no advantage over the animals. Everything is enigmatic. From All come from dust, and to dust all returns. This is the problem, right? You're a priest in a church, he spent 40, 40 years abusing little kids. No one catches you. And you go into the church-run retirement home, and you die. <laughs> Where's the judgment? This is the problem, right? If there is a God who's going to judge, well, when's he going to do it? <laughs> if we just die, and then that's it. So in addition to there being a God... There also needs to be something else, doesn't there? Something else needs to be true about the nature of reality. What is that? If justice is to be done, something else needs to be true. What needs to be true is that death cannot be the end. There has to be life after death, which is the place and the arena of judgment and justice. Because if there is no life after death, if death is the end, then justice for the poor is impossible, and we feel like that's wrong. So there must be an, a, a time when everyone will have to give an account. There must be life beyond the grave. Hmm. Well... Kohelet doesn't actually give us a clear answer on that. He was uh, writing in the 3rd century BC. The Old Testament doesn't have a well-developed understanding of the afterlife. It's, it's, it's coming. It says there's something after death for sure, but it's not well-developed. But what we find right at the center of Christianity, uh, we find a very well-developed doctrine of judgment, which is incredibly good news. Here's how the story ends. If you recall last week I talked about this whole, the meta-narrative, the story of Christianity in five acts. Here's the ending. And the ending in apocalyptic language, in very vivid poetic language, is uh, a court, a judgment scene. Uh, now, often you may feel very uncomfortable with this because often the doctrine of eternal judgment, lakes of fire and turning or burning is something we really typically associate with the handmaid's tale and, uh, and, and kind of crazy, wacky fundamentalists thumping the Bible in the south of wherever and, uh, you know, sophisticated urban Sydney-siders. We're quite uncomfortable with the doctrine of uh, lakes of fire and judgment until we stop and think about it and then we go, oh, actually... 
Gosh, we need that. So, so just listen, and then let's think about it. It says, then I saw, this is a picture of, a, of the, this is how the world's going to end. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, right? And the, and the heaven, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The throne is a place of judgment, and the books were opened. It's a royal commission. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Death doesn't remove impunity for evildoers. Because <laughs> the dead are being judged. Wow, that's good. Because there's not a lot of Nazis left who got away with murdering my family. But they're going to be judged even though they're dead. Yeah, that's great. That's great right there. The sea, chaos, gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, so you die once, and then there's kind of this place of judgment and death. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Yes! That's where, they des- that's where they belong, right? It's good news, hey? Why aren't you fist-pumping, amening? Well, it is really good news that there is an omniscient, Loving, powerful God who will judge all people for everything. Every little deed you've ever done, every thought, it's going to be like displayed on a giant wall and everyone will see it and God's going to judge it and every person is going to be... That's great news. But it's also terrible news. I suspect that's what you're feeling a little bit right now. That's terrible news. Why? Why is it so bad? Well, here's the thing. I'm I'm sure you are way more spiritual and other person-centered than me. Here's my attitude around judgment. I love the idea of judgment for you. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just, I'm not so keen on the idea of judgment for me. If everyone's going to be judged, if, we're, if, every, if impunity is removed for all oppression and evil, then my impunity is removed for what I've done and what I've thought. And that's a problem, right? And it's a, it's, it's a big problem. And it's a pro- the, the problem only gets worse when you think about it because we can think, oh, we're all very good and nice, but listen... God knows your heart. If you were further up the, the hierarchy of power, you'd be more oppressive. <laughs> the only reason you and I aren't as bad as we could be is we haven't had the opportunity and the power and the sense of impunity because we live somewhere like Australia but put you in another place. You say, oh, that's not true. Let me tell you, I was speaking with a, a psychologist and they made the point to me that most soldiers who return with PTSD 
a big component of their PTSD is not what they have, not the evil that they have seen other people do. Do you know what causes the PTSD? It's it's as much the evil they've done, right? And I know that I grew up in in Rhodesia and in South Africa, and my friends and my brother they went to war. And good, lovely people like you and I committed atrocities and war crimes. And anyone who goes to war is going to participate in gross evil. And you would, I would, given the opportunity. So it's a problem, right? I'm going to be judged. You're going to be judged. Uh, it's great at one level, but it's terrifyingly bad news at another level. So what's to be done? What hope is there? Well, uh, again, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, doesn't give us the great answer to this. It doesn't give us the final answer. But Christianity moves us to this answer. And what I'm going to explain to you now is something that I can articulate, but if I'm really honest, I don't understand. Okay? So if you find yourself going, I don't get it either, that's okay. You're in good company. It's a bit of a mystery, and I've been thinking about it really hard for 30 years. And the mystery is this. What God does, the God of justice looks at us and says, I will remove your impunity. You will be judged for everything you have done wrong. But he looks at that and he says, while that is great news, it's also terrible news because everybody is going to be judged and we're all in trouble. And God says, I want to provide a way out. But I, want to, I need to provide a way out, God says, that, that still brings justice in the world and still punishes evil. So how does he do it? Well, he says, I'm going to come up with this extraordinary, miraculous, mysterious answer. I am going to come into this world as a human being, the only person who's truly innocent in Jesus Christ comes into this world. And, in, and here's the mystery. All the justice and the judgment of God for your evil and mine gets piled onto the only innocent person in the world, Jesus. And the only innocent person absorbs the wrath of God and the punishment for our sin and in exchange, gives us his life and freedom and innocence. So God can do justice while saving evil people. That's what Jesus said. When he dies, he says, you're to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you. Jesus dies for the very people who are killing him so that their evil might be forgiven as he absorbs it into his own being. Isn't that extraordinary? As one hymn writer says, at the cross of Jesus, the justice and the mercy of God kiss. That's grace. And you go, how does that work, Mark? And I'm like, I don't know, but it does. <laughs> how, could, how could God do that? What, what justice and what love would move him to do that? What genius, what brilliance, what a scandal <laughs> that, that anyone who's evil can come and find grace and mercy as their justice is poured out onto Jesus instead of onto them, and they can be forgiven, and they can be drawn into God's family forever. Justice can be done, and mercy can be done, and the two come together. Yeah, that's extraordinary. That is a truly, genuinely extraordinary truth. We've, the good news is we've got forever to try and understand it and live in it. 
So uh, what does that mean for us today? Well, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer. There's a line in it that is incredibly powerful where Jesus says we are to pray and we're to say to God, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So now let's think about that for our response. Like, what does it mean for you tomorrow? Well, what is God's will in heaven? What happens in heaven? Justice is done. Impunity for evildoers is removed. Okay? So what does that mean for us today, if we are to pray the Lord's Prayer and be an answer to the Lord's Prayer, what does that mean? That means that we need to be people who bring into the presence functioning justice systems that provide protection for the poor and the oppressed around the world by removing impunity for evildoers. That's what we must do, right? It just seems bleedingly obvious to me. And it's interesting. Uh, this is why I and we are supporters of IJM, International Justice Mission, under the leadership of Gary Haugen, has come to this as a, as a Christian person. Gary and now the movement came to the realization that in the world of development and poverty relief, this piece of, ju of functioning justice systems, this was the piece that was missing. And until that is addressed, God's will is not being done on earth. So there, the first wave of development in our modern era, say post-Second World War, was addressing uh, uh, poverty and uh, health and education. Or it was addressing, sorry, food security, health and education. So that's the first wave. And we've got to do that. You've got to... You, we, we, there's a moral imperative as followers of Jesus to make sure that uh, people have food to eat, that they have clean water, uh, that they have education, uh, sanitation, right? You go, yes, that's critical. Then in the 70s, what happened was people said, well, you know, you can, you can build hospitals, you can put in sanitation, and you can educate people, but if they don't have jobs, if they don't have access to capital then they can't get out of poverty. So we saw the development of microfinance as the second sort of stool, the second leg on the stool of poverty alleviation. And that's wonderful. And don't hear me ever saying don't, don't provide access to capital for the poor because that's important. But what Gary Haugen has said is the thing that we missed was impunity for the oppressors of the poor mean that in the flash of an eye, all their wealth can be taken from them and all their education and their sanitation and their food can be rendered useless when a poor evil person steals whatever they have from them. When a girl can be raped with impunity, all the education in the world is of limited value. When your land can be stolen from you. Great, you've had a little business, you've saved up your money, but if, if the evil doers can take everything from you like that. So the third piece of the process of development globally has to be the development of functioning justice systems, which we take for granted here. Do you know in the Millennium Development Goals, year 2000, which were developed, justice system reform does not appear anywhere in the Millennium Development Goals. People just weren't aware of it. Because those goals were written largely by rich people who just assume a functioning justice system, so we didn't even see the problem. But of course, when you read the Bible, you see the, the scale of the problem. So 
my dream is that the body of Jesus Christ globally will be at the forefront of serving the poor by taking this teaching of Scripture, the will of God for justice, and rolling it out across the world so that through civil society, organizations like IGM, through the church, through government, through political process, through corporates, we will say that everybody will have a comforter when they're oppressed. That's doing God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's exciting. But wait, there's more. In addition to bringing justice into the world, what else do people need? They need Jesus. Because they need hope that, yes, I am evil. Yes, I face judgment, but there is grace and mercy freely available. So how is God's will in heaven to be done on earth? Well, God's will is that people receive his grace and mercy. They're forgiven and they're embraced and brought into a deep experience of his love. And that's what we need to do. We need to say, Lord, as we bring justice to the world, may we also bring Jesus to the world. As people experience justice, they also need to experience mercy and grace. Many years ago, 9-11 uh, happened, and there was a Christian leader called Michael Cassidy. Some of you might have heard of him. Michael started an organization called African Enterprise in South Africa. He's a, a Christian statesman leader all the way across Africa, very influential. And uh, I remember clearly he was on a tour of Australia uh, just after 9-11, and people were asking him, you know, as a as a Christian, what should the Christian response to Osama bin Laden be? What, what should we do? What should we pray for him? And Cassidy said this. He said, we need to pray for two things for Osama bin Laden. What do you think they were? That he comes to justice and that he comes to Jesus. That's what our world needs. We need to look around our city and we need to make sure that every poor, vulnerable person in our city has access to a functioning justice system. Indigenous people in Australia need that. Who's at the bottom of the hierarchy tree? Well, do they have access to justice? And do they have access to Jesus? The mentally ill, the disabled, the unborn, do they have a comforter? And do people get to hear about Jesus? That's what we're here to do. And what excites me about this journey of faith is we get to do it together, to build a church where we live this out in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence, but part of a global movement bringing justice and Jesus to the world, all around the world. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this challenge. Help us to lean into that and be people who bring justice and Jesus to the world.